Uh, it's important to keep things in perspective. It's important to be able to see the big picture. Uh, our frangipani tree at the moment looks dead. Uh, it's in the car park. Karen's hoping it'll stay through the uh, renovation of the car park, but uh, we're perhaps not hopeful. Uh, but uh, at the moment it looks dead, but if any of you have a frangipani tree, you know you need to keep things in perspective because come spring, uh, the, the, the buds will come out and the leaves and then those wonderful flowers. And so it would be a mistake to just chop it down because it looks dead. Uh, it's important to keep things in perspective. Or the stock market. Uh, shares go up and down daily and most beginners on the stock market apparently will sell too quickly. The share price drops, they get scared that they're going to lose. Uh, but the reality is, so I'm told, uh, over a longer period if you've got good stocks, they'll increase in value. And so to keep things in perspective... Good advice is to be patient and don't panic sell. Or the footy finals. It's all very well for your team, perhaps St George, but you know, we won't mention any names in particular. You know, it's all fine to be winning halfway through the season. That's all good, just top of the ladder halfway through. But you've got to keep things in perspective. You don't win a premiership for half a season. You have to play well right to the end. Uh, It's important to keep things in perspective. That's one of the main lessons Jesus is teaching us and his disciples here in Luke 21. If you look at verse 5, the disciples notice how impressive the temple is. In particular, they identify the intricate stonework and the decorative gifts, perhaps tapestries or golden sculptures. Uh, This is Herod the Great's temple. In Jesus' time, it was in the middle of a 50-year renovation and extension project. It began as small and unimpressive when Ezra returned from exile and supervised its rebuilding. Uh, But in 19 BC, Herod the Great began a renovation uh, that 50 years on in Jesus' time is still going on. It was finished shortly before it was destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus writes, uh, the exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astonish the soul or the eyes. The exterior being covered on every side with massive plates of gold, the sun had no sooner risen than it radiated so fiery a flash that those straining to look at it were forced to avert their eyes as from solar rays. Whatever was not overlain with gold was purest white. Uh, No wonder the disciples were impressed with the temple. Uh, But look at what Jesus' response is in verse 6. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. It's an extraordinary reply, isn't it? completely against the mood of the crowd. Everyone else in awe of the temple's beauty and how impressive and powerful its construction is. But Jesus is keeping things in perspective. He wants the disciples to do the same. Uh, If we look back at the last couple of chapters of uh, Luke, maybe his reaction is not so surprising. Flip back a page or two to 1939, the triumphal entry Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowd is cheering, they're praising that the Messiah has come but the Pharisees want Jesus to rebuke the crowd. 
There's nothing to celebrate according to them. 1941, Jesus weeps that Jerusalem hasn't recognised him and that it's headed for destruction. He says in 1942, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Then in 1945 he, he clears the temple because it's a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. Chapter 20 verse 1, the chief priests and the teachers question his authority. 20 verse 9, Jesus tells the parable about murderous tenants. 20 verse 19, in response the teachers and the chief priests realise it's, it's against them and so what do they do? They look for a way to murder him. Then in 20 verse 46, Jesus warns the people about the teachers who devour widows' houses. And then finally in 21 verses 1 to 4, he he sees one of those widows putting all she had to live on into the temple treasury. She's in poverty because of this temple. And And it's at that point that the disciples remark, Look how beautiful this temple is. Look how solid it is. Look how well made it is. How would you feel if you were Jesus? Rather than being impressed, surely it would be the opposite, wouldn't it? He wants the disciples to see the bigger picture. He wants them to keep things in perspective. It's a little like these luxury apartments there on the left. They look lovely, don't they? There's pools and tennis courts and... Uh, that one's in Brazil. Uh, this one's in Mexico. You can see in the foreground there that beautiful waterfront, uh, high-rise, million-dollar apartments. Uh, they look lovely until you see the bigger picture. They're built in the middle of slums and you realise there's something rotten about a society as a whole, that it can put such wealth and privilege right next to such poverty and not even notice. And that's what Jesus sees when he looks at the temple and the wealth and he looks at this widow who is put in all she owes or all she owns. He sees that there's something rotten with society, with the leadership and it's focused on the temple. He can't appreciate its beauty because all he can see is what's rotten and the judgement that's coming. And we need to see this world the same way. We need to see companies that are successful, we see governments that are powerful, we see wealth that's attractive, military forces that are scary, we see beauty that's distracting, friends who appear to have everything, media that's so influential, we see intellectuals who intimidate us and we're overawed, we're impressed. We think they'll last forever. We think they can't be challenged or defeated and we think we can't compare. But Jesus looks at that world, 
He looks at that world that rejects him, that ridicules his people, that denies his authority, despises his goodness and his claim over it and Jesus sees the big picture. He sees that this world is not powerful and immovable, it's headed for judgement. And instead it's Jesus who is powerful and immovable. Back in chapter 20 at the end of the parable of the tenants, he's described the owner of the vineyard who comes and kills the tenants because they've killed his son. Jesus here is a shocked and Jesus says in 20 verse 17, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And the first fulfilment of that is that the temple will be completely destroyed. Jesus says those words, it's almost impossible for the disciples to imagine. There are stones on the temple that were 20 metres long. 20 metres long, so that's longer than this building is wide. Two metres high, two metres thick. Those stones are going to be thrown down. They can't imagine it and they ask the obvious question, verse 7, when? What will be the sign that it's about to take place? And so they're the two questions that Jesus goes on to answer. It's important to remember that as we look at the rest of these verses which can be confusing. Every Christian, I think, since those first disciples has been at least a little confused. Is is he talking about the temple being destroyed? Is he talking about the end of the world? Is he talking about some combination of the two? And at least part of the solution is to remember the questions the disciples are asking and to realise that quite likely the disciples are putting those two events together. They're, they're putting together the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. In their minds, this temple is so solid. They are so confident in God's plans for Israel. The only way the temple's going to be destroyed is if everything else is being destroyed as well. In other words, destruction of the temple equals end of the world. That's what they're thinking. Matthew's version of this conversation, uh, the disciples ask these questions. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So it seems like the disciples are connecting temple and the end of time as one event. And so it seems like Jesus' answer is a combination of those two events and he's trying to give them a correct view, a correction of their slightly misunderstood view. He's he's going to talk about the destruction of the temple which was slightly into the future for them, 70 AD, but also about Christ's return, the end of the age which of course is still to come. So, with, with that in mind, let's have a look at it. They've asked for signs, verses 8 and 9. He, he says, these things will happen but they're not signs. So, so don't get distracted by them, they're false signs. Verses 8 and 9, imposters will come and say they're the Messiah. But that's not the sign. Uh, you'll hear wars and revolutions. But they're not the sign either. 
those things are going to happen first. That's not the time that the temple will be destroyed. And then he says the end won't come right away. There's going to be a delay. But when the end does come, you will know it. Now verses 10 and 11 I think are describing the end. Uh, The end of time, although it's possible it's describing the end of the temple. Verses 10 and 11 speak of wars, great wars, earthquakes, famines and plagues. And then to top it off, great signs from heaven. So they're the signs that Jesus says the disciples are to look for. You want to know what the signs will be when these things are happening? Well, when they come, you will know it. They're going to be clear. You won't miss it. And then in verse 12, Jesus says, that's off into the future, but I've got some more immediate concerns. Have a look at how verse 12 begins. But before all of this, before all of this, something's coming up that's going to be in the the immediate future. And then he describes the sorts of things that we see in the book of Acts. Only a few months after Jesus' death. Uh, He describes the apostles being arrested and imprisoned. We read that in Acts. Brought before synagogue rulers and kings and governors. We read about that as well. But Jesus says, despite that, God has a purpose in it. That's where you will testify about me. That's the way God's kingdom is going to grow. And then Jesus adds the comforting promise. They won't be powerless. Verse 14. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That's keeping things in perspective, isn't it? It may seem like these enemies are so big and powerful and they have the upper hand, but you're going to receive power that can't be resisted when you speak. He goes on, verse 16, it'll be worse than being interviewed or interrogated. Your own families will betray you. Some of you will even be killed. You'll be hated by everyone. But once again there's a promise with the bad news. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm you will gain life. Hang on a minute. (laughs) How does that work? How can they gain life and not a hair of their head perish but some of them will be put to death? How can you be put to death but still a hair of your head is not damaged, uh, perished? Well, I think what's happening, this is a promise from God that you will be kept eternally safe, even if you die. Jesus is promising those who die in the Lord will be kept eternally safe, even if they die. Nothing that happens on earth will affect their eternal security. That's keeping things in perspective. He's saying there are worse things that can happen to you than dying. Being kept eternally safe is what matters most. And what the disciples need to do as those terrible things are happening is to stand firm, to keep trusting God's promises, to not worry, to witness to him and then you'll be kept secure. That's what counts. Well, verses 20 to 24, Jesus Uh, most clearly describes what's going to happen when the temple is destroyed. 
When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know that its desolation is near. So there you go, that's most obviously Jesus' answer to what will be the sign. That's it, when the enemies, when the armies surround. But look at his advice, verse 21. When you see them surrounding, get out of town. Flee to the mountains. Now normally if you see an enemy, an army coming towards the city, you go into the city because that's behind the walls. That's where you will be safe. But Jesus says, don't take common wisdom. Get out of the city. Verse 23 says, How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. And tragically, that's what happened. April AD 70, Roman Emperor Vespasian sent his son Titus with a large army to lay siege to Jerusalem. April, the city was full of Passover pilgrims. Uh, The dreadful siege lasted five months before the city fell. Men, women and children were murdered in their hundreds of thousands, according to Josephus. The temple and nearly the whole city were burned to the ground and the finest, the best of those who remained were escorted off to Rome uh, as prizes. Only a few towers and part of the Western Mall, the foundation of the temple, were left. Uh, so that's what happened. But now, here we get to, I think, where Jesus starts to correct the disciples' misunderstanding. He says, that won't be the end of everything. It'll be the end of the temple, but it's not the end of everything. Notice what he says at the end of verse 24. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. After the destruction of the temple, there's going to be some period of time, Gentile time, and that's the time we're in now. We're living in the time of the Gentiles. The temple's been destroyed, but not everything else has been destroyed. And then when we get from verse 25, I think Jesus has jumped to the end of this time period, the end of the time of the Gentiles. Uh, There are going to be signs for that period of time too. So verse 25, he jumps to the end of the world and his return. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. When that time comes, for most people it's going to be terrifying. Uh, But that's before the greatest sign of all. Verse 27, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is Jesus returning from heaven as king to judge, to raise his people for himself. Just like Daniel 7 has predicted, that's how it's going to happen. For most people, that'll be a day of terror, but notice the attitude for those who belong to Jesus. Verse 28, When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That is the ultimate event that will keep everything else in perspective. That's going to be an awesome day. It will be a day when everybody 
He does not belong to Jesus. He is fearful and confused and puzzled. But Jesus says, when you see these things happening, stand up. Lift up your heads. It's nearly time. There are lots of things about the future we don't know. But this is certain. This is certain. He says in verse 33, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, words about this, they will never pass away. Jesus is coming with power and great glory so we can stand up. We can eagerly anticipate it. It's going to be a great day for those of us who belong to him. We don't want to miss out. And so Jesus gives some practical advice. We're to be acting differently. We're going to act very differently on that day, but we need to act very differently until that day as well. Look at what Jesus says in verse 34. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. In other words, because that day is sure, make sure you're ready for it. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by life. Dissipation is an interesting word, isn't it? Not one I think I use very often. But dissipation is about a wasted life. A life that slips away because you focus on minor, insignificant, pointless, temporary things. It's a life where you mistake fashion and recreation and pleasure and education and houses and family as if they're all that matters, as if they're ultimate, as if they're the end goal. Yes, they're important, but they're not ultimate. Dissipation is when we get distracted by them and forget what is really ultimate, when we forget that day. That's what it means to keep things in perspective. Well, the old temple has gone. Jesus' words came true. It was found guilty, it was judged. But that doesn't mean God's people are gone or that God's plans are defeated. The story of the whole Bible is that where one temple is destroyed, Jesus replaces it with another. Ephesians 2.19, we read about how Jew and Gentile are God's people, members of God's household. Ephesians 2.20 says, This new household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are the temple that God is building. God lives in us. We're joined to each other, we're joined to him and we're growing It's not earthly institutions that are going to last. They might look impressive, but in the end they will all fall before Jesus. But we are being built. News out of China. 
is that authorities are clamping down on the unofficial church. They're imprisoning pastors, they're expelling missionaries, but the reality is China won't stand. Muslims are persecuting Christians across northern Africa and the Middle East. It's violent, it's scary, it's growing, but the reality is Islam won't stand either. Secularism is growing in Australia, in academia, in education, in the media, social media and public opinion and Christianity is being driven further and further to the fringes. But in the end, it will be Jesus' church that stands, the new temple of his spirit. And Jesus finishes in verse 36, Be always on your watch, Pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Be watchful, prayerful, so you can stand. Jesus promises Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's lots we don't know about the future but Jesus' word is true. He says don't worry, stand firm, be watchful, be prayerful so that you can stand. That's what it means to keep things in perspective. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, in the midst of uncertainty about tomorrow, let's be honest, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow really, let alone next year or ten years' time, uh, but we trust you. Uh, you know what's going to happen and you've got it in your hand. Uh, help us to be watchful, to be prayerful, to speak up for you, to build your church so that in the end we might stand and that we might see your redemption coming. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.